1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali in in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha using this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume 13, studying chapters 31 through chapters 40. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly, you can access these books by going to buddhadailywisdom.com and from there you can click on the link that says free books. You'll see all the entire book series there and we're in volume 13. I'm going to be displaying this on the screen in Zoom and on all of our live streaming platforms so that you guys can see the individual chapters as we go in today's class. We're going to be reading one chapter, then I'll be sharing teachings about that, and then I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have. Today, I don't have a moderator that's helping out, so if you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you're welcome to put your questions into the comment section if you like. I'm going to try to circle through those and look and see what questions you guys have so that I can then be sure to answer those during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can come in and just raise your hand electronically. That'll actually help a whole lot so that I don't need to be looking at the individual comments. But I'll try to do that. This is kind of only the the first full class that I've taught without a moderator. I've tried to do this before for about 20 minutes or so, and it worked out okay. Just a few more buttons to click, a few more things to look at. So I'd like to welcome you guys. As I said, I'm going to go right into actually sharing the teachings rather than do our meditation that we typically do that way. We'll be sure that we have enough time throughout the course to cover all the individual chapters that are designated for today's class. So let me just switch over to the actual book so that you guys can see that. All right, so we're in chapter 31 to start out, and this is titled... Eight kinds of rebirth on account of giving. This book is actually titled Generosity, so all these chapters are around giving and sharing and generosity. Monks, there are these eight kinds of rebirth on account of giving. What eight? One. Here, someone gives a gift to an aesthetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents, and ointments bedding, dwellings, and lighting. Whatever he gives, he expects something in return. He sees affluent Katyas, affluent brahmins, and affluent householders enjoying themselves, furnished and endowed with the five objects of central pleasure. It occurs to him, Oh, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be reborn in companionship with affluent Katyas, affluent brahmins, Or affluent householders. He sets his mind on this, fixes his mind on this, and develops his state of mind. That objective of his, determined on what is inferior, not developed higher, leads to rebirth there. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with affluent Katsyas, affluent Brahmins, or affluent householders, and that is for one who is virtuous practices moral conduct i say not for one who is immoral the heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of his purity two someone else gives a gift to an aesthetic or a brahmin food drink and lighting whatever he gives he expects something in return he has heard the heavenly beings rule by the four great kings are long-lived beautiful and abound in happiness it occurs to him oh with the breakup of the body after death may I be reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings he sets his mind on this fixes his mind on this and develops this state of mind that objective of his Determined on what is inferior, not developed higher, leads to rebirth there. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings, ruled by the four great kings. And, that is for one who is virtuous, practices moral conduct, I say, not for one who is immoral. The heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of his purity three someone else gives a gift to an aesthetic or a brahmin food and drink and lighting whatever he gives he expects something in return he has heard four the heavenly beings of these various parts of the heavenly realm the tavats to some the yama the titsita The heavenly beings who excite in creation, the heavenly beings who control what is created by others, are long-lived, beautiful, and abound in happiness. It occurs to him, Oh, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who control what is created by others. He sets his mind on this, fixes his mind on this, and develops this state of mind, that objective of his determined on what is inferior not developed higher leads to rebirth there with the breakup of the body after death he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who control what is created by others and that is for one who is virtuous i say not for one who is immoral the heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of his purity eight Someone else gives a gift to an aesthetic or a Brahman, food and drink and lighting. Whatever he gives, he expects something in return. He has heard, the heavenly beings of Brahma's company, which is God's company, are long-lived, beautiful, and abound in happiness. It occurs to him, oh, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of Brahma, company he sets his mind on this fixes his mind on this and develops this state of mind that objective of his determined on what is inferior not developed higher leads to rebirth there with the breakup of the body after death he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of Brahma's company and that is for one who is virtuous I say not for one who is immoral for one without craving, not for one with craving. The heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of his purity. These monks are the eight kinds of rebirth on account of giving. Okay, so this chapter here, like many of the chapters that we've been reading so far, is describing how by practicing generosity, it leads to rebirth in the heavenly realm. This isn't what The Buddha actually taught in terms of the goal being to get reborn into the heavenly realm. Instead, the path to enlightenment is to get to enlightenment, which means the mind would be an arahant, fully enlightened and no longer having any of the ten fetters. Therefore, the mind won't experience any discontentedness and there won't be any rebirth. But for an individual who falls short of that, there's the rebirth, that is going to occur in one of the five realms of hell, the animal realm, afflicted spirits, the human realm, and the heavenly realm. And if somebody is reborn back into the human realm, then you have an opportunity to attain enlightenment. And if you're reborn into the heavenly realm, you have an opportunity to attain enlightenment. The human realm is the ideal place to have rebirth because you experience Pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Rebirth in the heavenly realm can also, one can experience enlightenment from that rebirth as well. But oftentimes, those beings lack motivation or enthusiasm to move towards enlightenment because they're only experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings, which means they don't necessarily have the built-in motivation of those painful feelings and the neither painful nor pleasant, which oftentimes will motivate someone to move towards enlightenment. So here, the Buddha is explaining part of that and helping you to see that through giving, one can experience rebirth in the realm of heaven. However, if you notice in this particular teaching that this individual who's making an offering has expectations of what is to be experienced as a result of providing an offering. And this is one of the reasons why the individual isn't enlightened, because in order to get to enlightenment, you would need to practice pure generosity, where there isn't any expectation for anything in return, that in making an offering and practicing generosity, that you're only interested in practicing generosity. And you know that you're doing that because you're training the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, the way that the mind holds on and constantly craves permanence. So by you practicing in that way, you can gradually eliminate craving, desire, attachment, along with using breathing mindfulness meditation. But here, this particular teaching, the Buddha is explaining that an individual actually has expectations. Therefore, they're not going to experience enlightenment in this particular life. But what he's explaining is that this person is at least practicing generosity and they have good, virtuous moral conduct. So they're not immoral. And this is what's helping them that leads to rebirth in the heavenly realm. So remember, this isn't ideal, this isn't what you're actually going for because rebirth in the heavenly realm is not permanent and there is potential rebirth after that if one doesn't get to enlightenment. And that rebirth can actually occur in any of the realms. It doesn't necessarily result in rebirth in the human realm or the heavenly realm, which from those realms you can practice to get to enlightenment, but there can also be rebirth from the heavenly realm into hell, the animal realm, or afflicted spirits realm. So this is what the Buddha is discussing here in chapter 31. Let me see if we have any questions in any of the places that we normally have questions come in. And I don't see any. Just switching around here to see what I can see. I actually cannot see the... Oh, there we go. I was going to say, I cannot see the chat in Zoom, but now I just figured out a way to be able to do that. All right, so let's go to the next chapter, which is chapter 32. Here, the Buddha is going to start focusing in on the benefits or the fruit of giving. This one is titled, Even More Fruitful Than Giving. If householder, one gives alms, rough or excellent, and one gives disrespectfully, gives inconsiderately, does not give with one's own hand, gives what would be discarded, gives without a view of future consequences. Then, wherever the result of that gift is produced for one, one's mind does not incline towards the enjoyment of superb food, nor towards the enjoyment of superb clothing, nor towards the enjoyment of superb vehicles, nor toward the enjoyment of whatever is superb among the five objects of central pleasure also one's children and wives and one's slaves servants and workers do not want to listen to one do not lend an ear and do not apply their minds to understand for what reason just this is the result of actions that are done disrespectfully If householder, one gives alms, whether rough or excellent, and one gives respectfully, gives considerately, gives with one's own hand, gives what would not be discarded, gives with a view of future consequences, then wherever the result of that gift is produced for one, one's mind inclines towards the enjoyment of superb food, towards the enjoyment of superb clothing, towards the enjoyment of superb vehicles towards the enjoyment of whatever is superb among the five objects of sensual pleasure. Also, one's children and wives, and one's slaves, servants, and workers, want to listen to one, lend an ear, and apply their minds to understand. For what reason? Just this is the result of actions that are done respectfully. In the past, householder, there was a Brahmin named Valama, he gave such a great offering as this. One, 84,000 golden bowls filled with silver. Two, 84,000 silver bowls filled with gold. Three, bronze bowls filled with bullion. Four, 84,000 elephants with golden ornaments, golden banners covered with nets of gold thread. 5. 84,000 chariots with upholstery of lion skins, tiger skins, leopard skins, and saffron-dyed blankets with golden ornaments, golden banners, covered with nets of gold thread. 6. 84,000 milk cows with jute feathers and bronze pails. 7. 84,000 maidens adorned with jeweled Earrings. 8. 84,000 couches spread with rugs, blankets, and covers with excellent coverings of antelope hide with can- cantaloupes and red bolsters at both ends. 9. 84,000 coltas of cloth made of fine linen, fine silk, fine wool, and fine cotton. How much more of food and drink, snacks, meals, refreshments, and beverages. It seemed to be flowing like rivers. You might think, Householder, he was someone else, the Brahman Valama, who on that occasion gave that great alms offering. But you should not look at it in such a way. I myself was the Brahman Valama, who on that occasion gave that great alms offering. Now, householder, at that alms offering, there was no one worthy of offerings, no one who purified the offering. Even more fruitful than giving alms offering that the Brahman-Valama gave would it be to feed one person accomplished in view. Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahma-Valama gave in feeding a hundred persons accomplished in view, would it be to feed one once returner? Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahma Vallama gave in feeding a hundred once returners, would it be to feed one non returner? Even more fruitful than the great alms offering than the Brahma Vallama gave and feeding a hundred non-returners, would it be to feed one arahant? Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the brahma Vallama gave, in feeding a hundred arahants, would it be to feed one pakya Buddha? Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the brahma Vallama gave, in feeding a hundred pakya Buddhas, Would it be to feed the Tathagata, the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one? Would it be to feed the community of monks headed by the Buddha? Would it be to build a dwelling dedicated to the community of the four quarters? Would it be for one with a mind of confidence to go for refuge to the Buddha, the teachings, and the community? Would it be for one? With a mind of confidence to undertake the five training precepts to abstain from the destruction of life to abstain from taking what is not given to abstain from sexual misconduct to abstain from false speech to abstain from liquor wine and intoxicants substances that cause heedlessness the basis for heedlessness as great as all this might be It would be even more fruitful if one would develop a mind of loving-kindness even for the time it takes to pull a cow's udder. As great as all this might be, it would be even more fruitful if one would develop the perception of impermanence just for the time of a finger snap. Okay, this is chapter 32. Here the Buddha is essentially showing how fruitful it is to essentially develop the perception of impermanence. That's the very last thing that he talks about. Developing this perception of impermanence is the very first thing that one should end up learning as part of the path to enlightenment. Without understanding the universal truth of impermanence, you wouldn't actually be able to make any headway on the path to enlightenment because the number one problem that is causing discontentedness is the mind is craving permanence. So if you don't understand that the mind is craving this permanence, but yet all of these objects around us, these conditioned objects are impermanent, then you wouldn't be able to actually start eliminating discontentedness because the mind would keep craving and craving and craving, not realizing and understanding the wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence. So the way that this is developed is through breathing mindfulness meditation, through studying, of course, and observing in the world, the universal truth of impermanence. This is how one comes to understand this. And then the Buddha talks about the second highest priority is developing a mind on loving kindness. And this is done through meditation, but then practiced in daily life through our intentions, our speech, and our actions. And he essentially equates this to that massive offering where he's saying these things are actually much more beneficial than those offerings of 84,000 bowls of of gold and silver and bullion and all those other things that he talked about offering in a previous life. He was saying that he was actually making this offering in a previous life. So here, he's saying how helpful it is to make offerings to people who are established in right view, who are a once-returner, non-returner, arahan, say Buddha, and so forth. The reason why offerings to these individuals is so helpful is that you're going to be coming in contact with them to then be able to learn and gain wisdom from these individuals. There's nothing mystical or magical about making an offering and then, whoa, you get lots of benefit. Instead, there's that diminishing of craving, desire, attachment, and there's the ability for you to then cultivate wisdom by learning from someone who's a once-returner, non-returner, arahant, a Buddha, and so forth. He goes through all these different individuals. And the first one that he talks about is someone who's established in view or accomplished in view. This would be someone who's either a stream enter or very close to being a stream enter. So that's what chapter 32 is about, is helping you to understand how valuable and how important it is for you to develop your practice through breathing mindfulness meditation, through cultivating wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence, and also cultivating the mind through developing loving kindness, as well as making offerings to this noble community who is part of the four stages of enlightenment of stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, and otter hunt. So let me see what questions you guys might have. I'll go through and see if there's any questions posted. I'm not seeing anything. So let's continue on in our journey here to chapter 33. Chapter 33 is the eight streams of merit. Monks, There are these eight streams of merit, streams of the wholesome, nutriments of peacefulness, heavenly, ripening in peacefulness, conducive that lead to what is aspired for, needed, and to heaven, agreeable to one's welfare and peacefulness. What eight? One, here a noble disciple has gone for refuge to the Buddha, That is the first stream of merit, stream of the wholesome, nutriment of peacefulness, heavenly, ripening in peacefulness, conducive to heaven, that leads to what is aspired for, needed and agreeable to one's welfare and peacefulness. 2. Again, a noble disciple has gone for refuge to the teachings. This is the second stream of merit, stream of the wholesome, nutriment of peacefulness, heavenly ripening in peacefulness conducive to heaven that leads to what is aspired for needed and agreeable to one's welfare and peacefulness three again a noble disciple has gone for refuge to the community this is the third stream of merit stream of the wholesome nutriment of peacefulness heavenly ripening in peacefulness conducive to heaven That leads to what is aspired for, needed and agreeable, to one's welfare and peacefulness. There are, monks, these five gifts, great gifts, highest of long-standing, traditional, ancient, untainted and never before tainted, which are not being tainted and will not be tainted, not refused by the wise aesthetics and Brahmins. What five? Here, a noble disciple, having abandoned the destruction of life, abstains from destruction of life. By abstaining from the destruction of life, the noble disciple gives to an immeasurable number of beings freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. He himself, in turn, enjoys immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. This is the first gift, a great gift, highest of long-standing traditional ancient untainted and never before tainted which is not being tainted and will not be tainted not refused by wise aesthetics and Brahmins this is the fourth stream of merit stream of wholesomeness nutriment of peacefulness heavenly ripening peacefulness conducive to heaven That leads to what is aspired for, needed, and agreeable to one's welfare and peacefulness. And then there's additional ones here. And he says, again, a noble disciple, having abandoned the taking of what is not given, abstains from the taking of what is not given, abstains from sexual misconduct, abstains from false speech, abstains from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. By abstaining from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness, the noble disciple gives to an immeasurable number of beings freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. He himself, in turn, enjoys immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. This is the fifth gift, a great gift, highest of long-standing, traditional, ancient, untainted, and never before tainted, which is not being tainted, and will not be tainted, not refused by wise aesthetics and Brahmins. This is the eighth stream of merit, stream of the wholesome, nutriment of peacefulness, heavenly, ripening peacefulness, conducive to heaven, that leads to what is aspired for, needed, and agreeable, to one's welfare and peacefulness. These monks are the eight streams of merit, Streams of the wholesome, nutriments of peacefulness, heavenly, ripening in peacefulness, conducive to heaven, that leads to what is aspired for, needed, and agreeable to one's welfare and peacefulness. All right. So here, the Buddha is describing that as you go to him, his teachings in the community for refuge, what refuge is, is protection. The way that you get protection is you gain confidence in the Buddha that he was enlightened. You get access to his teachings, which includes learning and practicing the teachings with this community, because these are what's called the triple gem or the triple jewel, the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. In order to progress on this path to enlightenment, you would need to have confidence in the Buddha, access to his teachings, and you would need to be part of a community. If you just had one or two of these things, you actually wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. You would need to have all three of these where you have confidence in the Buddha, access to his teachings, and be part of a community because that's where you will get access to a teacher. You'll be able to see other people who are practicing the teachings as essentially role models and helping to support you along the way to learning and practicing these teachings. And then as you have that, then the Buddha is saying the way to get to this peacefulness is that you practice the five precepts of not destroying life, sexual misconduct. If you're lying and you're taking substances that cause heedlessness, you're going to be causing harm to other beings. So he's saying that by you practicing this harmlessness through the five precepts and ensuring you're not making decisions to do those things, then you're providing this freedom of fear, hostility, and harm. Therefore, as a result, you are also getting that freedom of fear, hostility, and harm. Because by you not causing harm through your decisions, and you're practicing these five precepts, then you're not causing harm to others, so harm isn't coming to you. That's what he's talking about here, that this is how you get this freedom, and this is one of the aspects of your moral conduct that you'll need to develop on this path to enlightenment. So let me see what questions we have here on this chapter. Let's see. Okay, so it looks like somebody has a question on YouTube from a previous chapter that I wasn't seeing. Here we go. The Middle Way from chapter 31, could you please explain the statement, the heart's wish of one who is virtuous, succeeds because of his purity. How the purity purity mind makes the wish come true. Okay, so it's not actually a wish. It's more of an aspiration that the Buddha is talking about here. This word wish should really be translated as aspiration. That if you have an aspiration to be reborn in the heavenly realm, which is what the Buddha was talking about in that chapter, that by you practicing generosity and you have good moral conduct and you're not practicing immorality, then that's what's going to lead to future rebirth in the heavenly realm. But remember, again, that's not the actual goal. The goal is to get to enlightenment. But the same things that lead to rebirth in the heavenly realm are the same things that lead to enlightenment as well. So if you are practicing the path to enlightenment and you're learning all of those aspects of the path, which includes generosity and moral conduct, then you're working towards enlightenment. But if you fall short of that, then those same qualities of mind that you've cultivated on this path to enlightenment to get to enlightenment could potentially result in a rebirth in the heavenly realm. But remember, that's not the actual goal. So that answers that question. And if there's any other questions, just let me know. I'm not seeing anything here in Facebook. All right. So I will just go on to the next chapter here. Chapter 34. The three bases of meritorious activity. Monks, there are these three bases of meritorious activity generating wholesome karma. What three? Three the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving, the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior, and the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. 1. Here, monks, someone has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving to a limited extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior, to a limited extent, but he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn among humans in an unfavorable condition. 2. Someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving to a middling extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a middling extent, but he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn among humans in a favorable condition. Someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving to a superior extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a superior extent, but he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings. There are the four great kings who had practiced supremely The basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving and the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior surpassed the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings in ten respects. In heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, and heavenly authority, and in heavenly forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. Four, someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving to a superior extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a superior extent. He has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings. There, Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, who had practiced supremely the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving and the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior, surpasses these heavenly beings in ten respects. In heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, and heavenly authority, and in heavenly forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. 5. Someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving to a superior extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a superior extent, but he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development with the breakup of the body after death he is reborn in companionship with the yama heavenly beings there the young heavenly being suyama who had practiced supremely the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving and the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior surpasses the yama heavenly beings in 10 respects In heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, and heavenly authority, and in heavenly forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. 6. Someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in giving, to a superior extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in virtuous behavior, to a superior extent. But he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the Tusitta heavenly beings. There, the young heavenly being, Santusita, who had practiced supremely the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in giving, in the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior, surpasses the tusita heavenly beings in ten respects, in heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, heavenly authority, in heavenly forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. Seven, someone else who has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting In giving to a superior extent, he has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a superior extent, but he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who excite in creation. There, the young heavenly being, Suni Mita, who had practiced supremely the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving and the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior, surpasses the heavenly beings who excite in creation in ten respects, in heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, and heavenly authority and in heavily forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. 8. Someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in giving to a superior extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in virtuous behavior, to a superior extent. But he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in meditative development, With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who control what is created by others. There, the young heavenly being, Vasavatati, who has practiced supremely the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving and the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior, surpasses the heavenly beings who control what is created by others in ten respects, in heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, and heavenly authority, and in heavenly forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. These monks are the three basis of meritorious activity. Okay, so let me help you dissect what is helpful here in order to develop your practice. The Buddha is going through a lot of details, which he typically does because his mind is fully, perfectly enlightened with deep wisdom. He's able to explain a lot of specific details about these natural laws of existence and the cycle of rebirth and how the teachings that he shares is helping to improve the condition of the mind and and, or improve your rebirth. And always keep in mind, your goal is to get to enlightenment, not to experience rebirth. But here, he is mainly talking about people who are practicing generosity and virtuous behavior or moral conduct, but not yet practicing the meditation. Here, these three aspects of the three bases of meritorious activity, we refer to this as the way of practice. This is generosity, moral conduct, and mental discipline, which is actually the meditation. So there's the generosity, moral conduct, and the meditation. These three things together is what helps you to understand what to practice on a daily basis. Because there's this eightfold path that goes into a lot of details about the specifics of what you need to practice. And then there's all the connecting teachings that plug into this core central teaching. But what you would like to do is look at, well, what can I be doing on a daily basis to build up my practice? And this is oftentimes a really wonderful place to start. Is develop your generosity where you're giving and sharing more than is strictly required of your time effort energy and resources then you're practicing the moral conduct of right speech right action and right livelihood this ensures that you're not causing harm through your moral conduct so therefore you will now just be putting wise decisions out related to your moral conduct and you won't be causing harm to other beings And then you're practicing meditation to train the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, which are the two primary forms of meditation. And then the other two are there for specialized situations. So here, the Buddha describes that there's this improved rebirth for one who's practicing generosity and moral conduct but not yet practicing meditation. That's why there is rebirth, because without meditation, you wouldn't actually be able to get to enlightenment. It's not just meditation that gets you to enlightenment. You need other teachings as well, but without meditation, you wouldn't actually be able to get to enlightenment. So this is where you can take away and extrapolate from this chapter, is to be sure you're practicing generosity, moral conduct, and meditation, and understand that all three of these are highly important for you to be able to make your way closer and closer to enlightenment. But if you're not practicing meditation, there is this potential rebirth in the heavenly realm. But I wouldn't actually, you know, kind of bank on that or become committed to not meditating because you would like to just practice generosity and moral conduct. Instead, fully develop your practice of the entire Eightfold Path, which will ultimately lead to enlightenment rather than doing something less than that. Instead, fully develop your practice so that there's no rebirth whatsoever. So let me see if there's questions on this particular chapter. All right, I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter. So let's move on to the next one. Chapter 35, a heavenly being's curiosity. So here, this is a heavenly being asking questions to the Buddha, which a Buddha is going to be teaching humans, but they're also teaching heavenly beings as well when heavenly beings come and ask for teachings. So this is a depiction of a heavenly being coming to ask the Buddha some questions in order to develop their practice through developing wisdom. So the heavenly being asks, giving what does one give strength? Giving what does one give beauty? Giving what does one give ease? Giving what does one give sight? Who is the giver of all? Being asked, please explain to me. So now the Buddha, the perfectly enlightened one. Giving food, one gives strength. Giving clothes, one gives beauty. Giving a vehicle, one gives ease. Giving a lamp, one gives sight. The one who gives a residence is the giver of all, but the one who teaches the teachings is the giver of the deathless or enlightenment. Now, heavily being asked more questions. For whom does merit always increase, both day and by night? Who are the people going to heaven, established in the teachings, endowed with virtue or moral conduct? the perfectly enlightened one, or the Buddha, shares, those who set up a park or a grove, the people who construct a bridge, a place to drink in a well, those who give a residence. For them, merit always increases, both by day and by night. Those are the people going to heaven, established in the teachings, endowed with virtue, moral conduct. So here the Buddha is relating what is provided by making the offering of food, clothes, a vehicle, lamp, a residence, in one who shares the teachings. And he's saying if you give food, then what you're essentially giving to another person is you're giving them strength. By giving clothes, you're giving them beauty because now their body can be protected by the clothes. By giving a vehicle or transportation, which is essentially a cart, uh, a carriage during the lifetime of the Buddha, One gives ease, the ease of travel. By giving a lamp, one gives sight because during the lifetime of the Buddha, of course, there wasn't any electricity. So it was an oil lamp that would have provided sight to be able to see things when it's dark out. One who gives a residence or a place to live is the giver of all because all of these things tend to be at a particular residence and they can actually receive food, clothing, Uh, vehicles, and lamp. These things are typically provided in a residence and uh, exist at a residence to be able to then use for your benefit. And then one who shares the teachings, essentially, is the giver of the deathless. What the deathless is, is this is how it's actually described as enlightenment. Because once you attain enlightenment, it's not considered that you die. Instead, you are attaining final enlightenment once you attain enlightenment and the body dies and the body separates from the mind when this occurs you're not experiencing death because you've escaped the cycle of rebirth having attained enlightenment so this is called the deathless or enlightenment enlightenment is typically used most often but occasionally the buddha talks about it as the deathless or the deathless element So, one who's sharing teachings of the Buddha, you are providing the guidance that is able to help others to achieve enlightenment. You can't actually give people enlightenment. But because this is talking about generosity, in order to share these teachings, there's an enormous amount of generosity that goes into doing that. The time, the effort, the energy, and the resources to be able to share these teachings is quite enormous. And by doing that without any expectation of anything in return, and just living based on donations, this individual is trying to help the community and help the world by sharing these teachings. And then this person is then the giver of enlightenment. But of course, you can't actually give enlightenment, but you're providing the teachings that provide the opportunity for people to get to enlightenment. Then the Buddha talks about offerings that are essentially really significant that provide continuous ongoing merit. Because what the offerings that he talks about here is setting up a park or a grove. This is where people would come to relax and spend time and have conversation, maybe even talk about these teachings. People who construct a bridge to be able to travel over a waterway, which I imagine was very challenging during the lifetime of the Buddha to move through uh, and over a particular water. So if you had to go all the way around, then it would be very challenging. It would extend your travel. And traveling during those times were very difficult. So by building a bridge, you're providing this opportunity for people to travel with more ease. And then providing the well. So fresh water is what we all need in order to live. Without water, we would die within three days. So by providing a well with a fresh place to drink water, this is also helping people to sustain their life. And then the Buddha talks about giving a residence. He prioritizes this because this is a place where you can get shelter. And he talks about this in other parts of his teachings where giving a residence or a dwelling place is very, very helpful for the community of practitioners that with ordained practitioners needing a place to stay, then by providing a residence, this helps to allow people to stay in Be able to be sheltered and then ultimately provide teachings as part of their life. Whereas if they didn't have the shelter, then they would be subjected to the elements of the weather and they wouldn't be able to have their kind of wits about them in terms of being able to share the teachings because they would be battling the elements of the weather rather than resting at ease in a residence and be able to share the teachings to help others. And he's saying that these offerings are essentially very significant. So someone who provides a park, a grove, constructs a bridge, provides a well for drinking, and who gives an actual residence. Let me see if we have any questions on any of these. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions on those. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 36. People who generate much merit or wholesome gamma, because merit is a unique type of wholesome karma, which is developed and created when you make an offering to the noble community. The noble community is the individuals who are in the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment, which is stream enter, once returner, non-returner, and otter hunt, or individuals who are practicing to attain one of those four. So these are the eight people that the Buddha describes as part of the noble community. And when you're making offerings to them and for the benefit of the continued sharing of these teachings, this is merit. It's a type of wholesome kama, but it's unique in that you're practicing generosity towards the continued sharing of Gautama Buddha's teachings. So here he says, monks, whenever virtuous monastics, come to a home, the people there generate much merit, wholesome gama, on five grounds. What five? When people see virtuous monastics come to their home and they arouse hearts of confidence towards them, on that occasion that family is practicing the way conducive to heaven. When people rise, pay homage, respect, and offer a seat to virtuous monastics, who come to their home, on that occasion that family is practicing the way conducive to birth in high families. When people remove the stain of selfishness towards virtuous monastics, who come to their home, on that occasion that family is practicing the way conducive to great influence. When according to their means, people share what they have with virtuous monastics, who come to their home, On that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to great wealth. When people question virtuous monastics who come to their home, make inquiries about the teachings, and listen to the teachings, on that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to great wisdom. Monks, whenever virtuous monastics come to a home, the people there generate much merit or wholesome karma, On these five grounds. So here the Buddha is explaining how to essentially receive greater and greater wisdom by inviting ordained practitioners or virtuous monastics, teachers, people who are sharing these teachings, inviting them to your home with confidence, knowing that these individuals are practicing well. Whereas if you were just to invite any old monastics or any old teacher to your home that isn't practicing the teachings well, this isn't going to uh, produce beneficial results for you because you're not going to have the opportunity to gain wisdom and deeply understand the teachings to benefit your practice. So the Buddha always designated that As you're making offerings and as you're receiving teachings, that you seek out people who are virtuous monastics and virtuous teachers. That's what's going to help you. Here, the Buddha talks about inviting monastics to the home and bringing them to the home. This is conducive to rebirth in the heavenly realm. Then he talks about that when you pay respect to them, when they come and you offer them a seat, this provides. A potential rebirth conducive to high families, or these are individuals who are born into a family who is very affluent. And then that would make it easier for you in your next life to then be able to potentially get to enlightenment because you're not affected by poverty or famine or things like this. And then one who's practicing where they're not selfish, they're making offerings of food, water, clothing, medical supplies, to virtuous monastics. The Buddha is saying this is conducive to great influence in helping you to then have influence in your community. And then the Buddha is talking about people who, according to their means, they share the things that they have. So the Buddha doesn't teach to just give, 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 give uh, without wise decisions, but instead, according to your means, practicing that middle way, and ensuring that as you invite people to your home to share teachings with you, that you are willing to give and share those things which are, are you're able to. And he's saying this is conducive to great wealth. And then he talks finally about asking questions and making inquiries and listening to the teachings. And a family who's doing this, having invited these teachers and shared with them, offered them seats, provided respectful greetings and things like this, ultimately the goal is to investigate the teachings, ask questions and listen to the teachings. And this is what leads to uh, wisdom because by getting to wisdom, this is where the mind can actually move closer and closer to enlightenment. Without having wisdom, you wouldn't be able to understand all the various teachings that the Buddha taught Including the Eightfold Path and eliminating the 10 fetters to actually be able to get to enlightenment. So, that would be your ultimate goal in inviting someone to your home is that perhaps somebody stays with you for a few days or a week or two or what have you, and that this is going to then allow you to gain understanding of the teachings. And while that person's in your home, they can be observant of how things function in the home and be able to provide you and the people that live there the understanding of the teachings of how to improve your practice, which will improve your functioning of your household and allow people to live with more peacefulness and more harmony within the household. So let me see if we have any questions on this chapter. I'm not seeing any questions there. So we'll move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 37. I'm going to take a little drink of water here. All right, so this particular chapter is titled Having Fulfilled and Not Having Fulfilled One's Duty Towards the Aesthetics or Ordained Practitioners. Monks, last night when the night had advanced, a number of heavenly beings of stunning beauty illuminating the entire jetty's grove approached me, paid homage or respect to me and stood to one side those heavenly beings then said in the past venerable sir when we were human beings monks approached our homes we rose up for them but did not pay homage or respect to them not having fulfilled our duty full of regret and remorse we were reborn in an inferior class of heavenly beings some other heavenly beings approached me and said in the past venerable sir When we were human beings, monks approached our homes. We rose up for them and paid homage or respect to them, but we did not offer them seats. Not having fulfilled our duty, full of regret and remorse, we were reborn in an inferior class of heavenly beings. Some other heavenly beings approached me and said, In the past, Venerable Sir, when we were human beings, monks approached our homes. We rose up for them paid homage or respect to them, and offered them seats, but we did not share things with them to the best of our ability and capacity. And then this continues and repeats with this changing part of the discourse. We shared with them to the best of our ability and capacity, but we did not sit close by to listen to the teachings. We sat close by to listen to the teachings, but did not listen to it with eager ears. We listened to it with eager ears, but having heard it, we did not retain the teachings in mind. Having heard it, we retained the teachings in mind, but we did not examine the meaning of the teachings that had been retained in mind. We examined the meaning of the teachings that had been retained in mind, but we did not understand the meaning of the teachings and then practice in accordance with the teachings. Not having fulfilled our duty, full of regret and remorse, we were reborn in an inferior class of heavenly beings. Some other heavenly beings approached me and said, In the past, Venerable Sir, when we were human beings, monks approached our homes. We rose up for them, paid homage to them, offered them seats, and shared with them to the best of our ability and capacity. We sat close by to listen to the teachings and listened to it with eager ears. Having heard it, we retained the teachings in mind. We examined the meaning of the teachings that had been retained in mind, and we understood the meaning of the teachings and then practiced in accordance with the teachings. Having fulfilled our duty, free of regret and remorse, we were reborn in a superior class of heavenly beings." These are the feet of trees, monks. These are empty huts. Meditate, monks. Do not be complacent. Do not have cause to regret it later, like those prior heavenly beings. So, here the Buddha is explaining how to essentially take that teaching from the previous chapter and ensure that we implement it, that we actually do the things that he's sharing, which includes the learning of the teachings and actually applying the teachings, that by not doing that, we will regret it later when we're reborn into an inferior existence, either in the heavenly realm or some other realm. That if you're meditating, if you're learning the teachings, if you're practicing, including generosity and all the other steps of the full path, then by you practicing in this way and developing your practice, you're moving closer and closer to enlightenment. And having attained enlightenment, you will know that you've attained enlightenment because the mind will no longer experience any discontentedness. And you'll be so pleased that you've dedicated this portion of your life to Deeply understanding the teachings and practicing them, so that now the entire rest of your life, you can enjoy this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. If you fall short of that, as the Buddha has explained in many discourses, you can potentially be reborn into the heavenly realm. But if you stay diligent and dedicated to your practice, there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment in this life. But unfortunately, complacency is one of the biggest challenges for the vast majority of humanity is that either they're willingly complacent or they're just unknowing that you know things like anger and sadness and frustration are even a problem. We tend to just kind of accept this without wisdom of this path. We just kind of accept that these things are normal and that human beings should experience anger or that there's some benefit to anger and frustration or things like this. But instead, when you come to understand that you can actually eliminate this and you gradually start working towards that and you actually see discontentedness gradually diminishing in the mind through your efforts, then you'll know and you'll build confidence that you have the ability to attain enlightenment, but you need to kick out this complacency. The complacency oftentimes will come into the mind. You'll slack off on your... Uh, generosity, slack off on your moral conduct, slack off on your meditation, and you need to stay consistent. If you miss a meditation here or there, okay, that's understandable. That's impermanence. Your enlightenment isn't going to be determined if you miss a meditation here or there. What is going to determine your enlightenment is if over a consistent long-term period of time, can you stay dedicated and diligent to continually meditating? Can you continually practice moral conduct? Can you continually practice generosity? Can you continue to develop more and more wisdom about this path and practice more and more closely to what an enlightened being practices? And as you do, then you'll get closer and closer to enlightenment and you'll see the truth for yourself that it's working. But if you allow complacency to come into the mind, then this can potentially hinder you. So you need to stay dedicated and diligent without the craving, but without the indifference. Practicing this middle way or you're gradually walking the path, setting this goal, this objective, this interest towards the attainment of enlightenment. Let me see if we have any questions on this chapter. Let's see. I think I might see one here do enlightened people communicate with heavenly beings or it was just Buddha that had that ability? So a Buddha is definitely going to have the ability to communicate with heavenly beings and heavenly beings are going to be able to communicate with a Buddha. They're going to be able to be interested to learn the teachings and move closer and closer to enlightenment themselves in the heavenly realm if they have the motivation and encouragement to do that. So the heavenly beings are going to be able to communicate with the Buddha. They can also communicate with enlightened beings and even unenlightened beings. Some unenlightened beings can actually have communication with heavenly beings. It just depends on the certain qualities of mind. As you're moving more and more pollution from the mind, you can experience interaction from beings not only from the heavenly realm, but the other formless realms as well, like afflicted spirits in the hell realm. You know, if we came in contact with a dog or a snake or a spider or a bird or something like this, we, you know, look at that as being very normal because it's a form being, right? A animal and a human has physical form. This is completely normal. We interact with these beings all the time. But what we don't realize is that these other beings in these other realms are right around here with us as well. Heavenly beings beings in the afflicted spirit realm and in the realm of hell as well. These beings can interact with us. And as your mind becomes more and more enlightened, removing more and more pollution, you actually might experience this. And this is where it's important to ensure that you don't have fear of these things and you remain with equanimity and calm when these things are occurring. So to answer your question, yes, an enlightened being has the ability to communicate with heavenly beings but so do all other beings depending on the qualities of their mind and there will even be communication with the other formless beings of hell afflicted spirits as well as the heavenly realm and i don't see any questions on facebook so we'll go ahead and move forward with the next chapter all right so this is chapter 38 this is titled, Offerings That Are Not Worth Even a Fraction. Whatever woman, much joyful, endowed with virtue, moral conduct, a disciple of the welfare, food and drink, gives, having overcome material gain, the gift is heavenly, dispelling sorrow, bringing peacefulness, and she gains a heavenly being, lifespan owing to the spotless, stainless way, she aspiring merit at ease, healthy, joyful, long in a heavenly company. If one practices the teachings through getting on by gathering, if one supports one's wife, one gives from the little one has, then a hundred thousand offerings of those who sacrifice a thousand are not worth even a fraction of the gift of one like him. Since they give while settled in unrighteousness, having slain and killed, causing sorrow, their offering, tearful, a result of violence, shares not the value of the righteous one's gift. That is why. A hundred thousand offerings of those who sacrifice a thousand are not worth even a fraction of the gift of one like him. Okay, so the Buddha here is talking about the different types of offerings one can make, and he's talking very generally and very broad here, where other discourses he talks in much more detail. So at different times in his teachings, he's going to teach at different levels of detail to expose more and more of the teachings. So someone who's maybe just starting, you're going to start at more of like a higher level of detail. And then as someone gets deeper and deeper into the teachings, a teacher is going to go deeper and deeper into the detail. So here he's talking about uh, someone who's making an offering and he's talking to a woman or about a woman, but this is not just for a woman. You can actually apply all genders and non-genders here. It's any being who's making an offering, not just a woman, but he just happened to be talking to a woman or about a woman in this particular discourse. He's talking about a person who essentially makes an offering that is you know, very wholesome and has not caused any harm through acquiring the means to make an offering. And then he talks about an individual who actually has caused harm and has killed in order to provide this particular offering. And he's saying that if you gather up an offering where you haven't harmed others or harmed yourself, then this is going to produce much more benefit than someone who tries to make an offering based on having killed. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, as people made offerings, there were actually sacrifices of animals in some cases, with certain rites, rituals, and ceremonies. There's even those things today where certain groups of people will kill an animal and burn it on a fire, and this is actually made as an offering. In some cases, people think that they're making this offering to some being or some deity and by doing this it's actually causing harm to that being so therefore the buddha is saying that this offering doesn't really have any kind of real value instead it's ensuring that you're righteous and that you're making wholesome offerings by ensuring that you're not harming others through the offerings that you develop let me see if we have any questions here about this particular teaching. Not seeing any questions here. So we're going to move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 39 Gifts of an Unwholesome Person and a Wholesome Person. Monks, there are these five gifts of an unwholesome person. What five? One, he gives carelessly two he gives without deep respect three he does not give with his own hand four he gives what would be discarded five he gives without a view about the results of giving these are the five gifts of an unwholesome person monks there are these five gifts of a wholesome person what five one he gives carefully two he gives with deep appreciation and gratitude. Three, he gives with his own hand. Four, he gives what would not be discarded. Five, he gives with a view about the results of giving. These are the five gifts of a wholesome person. So here the Buddha is providing guidance on the type of gifts and kind of the way of giving. And he talks about kind of giving carelessly without deep respect, you know, not with your own hand, things that you were going to discard and you just kind of give to somebody you haven't really taken the effort to get a really nice gift. And you don't necessarily even know the results of giving in terms of the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, and that's the purpose of giving. And then he talks about one who gives carefully. Someone, I'll show you down here, I have the details that someone who gives in regards to an individual's needs and kind of a well-thought-out particular gift, that as you get to know your teacher, for example, you might know certain things that they need in order to sustain their life. You might start learning certain brands that they use, certain products that they use, and you might actually purchase those things and put a lot of thought into what you're actually offering. And that's somebody who's giving carefully. Or if you know that your teacher is embarking on a certain project and they might need support for that project in order to bring some teachings into the community you might you know talk to your teacher and ask what type of things do they need before you actually assemble your offering because a teacher is not going to actually ask you for anything specific instead they're just going to await what is given but if you're interested in giving carefully and ensuring that what you give is going to actually meet the needs of an individual you might ask questions of that individual that teacher and that way you can give a gift uh, very carefully and assure that it's going to meet the needs of the individual. And that the second thing the Buddha talks about is having deep respect or appreciation or gratitude for the one that you're giving this gift to. And that will help to cultivate in the mind respect, appreciation, and gratitude for that person you're giving the gift to but also. That coming up into the mind, those mental qualities being cultivated is actually going to then be able to be applied to other people as well. Because if you're having difficulties cultivating respect, appreciation, and gratitude for people in your life, one of the ways to do that is if you have somebody that you do have respect, appreciation, and gratitude for is to bring that up into the mind as you're giving a gift and you're preparing an offering. That way, those Mental qualities are experienced, and you're then more readily able to apply it in other relationships that you have. Number three is to give a gift of using your own energy, effort, and actions rather than just give a gift to somebody else and have them do it. Instead, the Buddha is saying that you know you take the effort to do this on your own. And what this does is this actually brings you in contact with the individual that you're making an offering to. Therefore, it actually allows you to receive teachings. And again, this helps to bring up the motivation and the dedication and the diligence, the enthusiasm. Whereas if you were complacent and you just you know, tossed a gift over to somebody and say, ah, I give that to somebody or give that to my teacher, or, give that to some monks or some temple, then you're not really putting your effort and your energy, your actions into it. You haven't arisen that enlightenment factor of energy that is needed in order to be able to move the mind closer and closer to enlightenment. The fourth one is to give a gift of an item that is useful and beneficial of good quality that if you are just going to discard some food for example say you've eaten half of the food and you're going to discard it it wouldn't be wise to offer that to somebody or if you have some rotting food at home and you're going to just give that to somebody or you have an item that's maybe not being used at home and maybe it's broken it doesn't really work as well and you just give that away so these offerings or these gifts don't really have any real value because you were going to discard it anyway. So why would you give that to somebody else? So the Buddha teaches you to ensure that you're giving something that's useful and beneficial of good quality. And then to give a gift with an understanding of the results of practicing generosity. The results of practicing generosity are the elimination of craving, desire, attachment. If you don't understand this, then one who's practicing generosity doesn't have the real purpose behind their gift and understanding what they're actually working to eliminate. So as you're giving a gift, you need to understand that you're working to eliminate this clinging, this craving, this yearning, this longing, this holding on to things. And that's what's ultimately going to Uh, eliminate the craving, desire, attachments is by practicing generosity and get you closer to enlightenment where the mind isn't experiencing discontentedness any longer. So I'm just going to check for questions here, see what questions we might have. Let's see. I need to share my screen and pull up the chat. There we go. All right, so I'm not seeing any questions there. So we'll move on to this last chapter, which is chapter 40. This one is titled Gifts of a Wholesome Person. And this is the first discourse because there's going to be additional discourses after this, starting with chapter 41. Monks, there are these eight gifts of a wholesome person. What eight? One, he gives what is pure. Two, he gives what is excellent. Three, he gives a timely gift. Four, he gives what is allowable. Five, he gives after investigation. Six, he gives often. Seven, while giving, he settles his mind in confidence. And eight, having given, he is joyful. These are the eight gifts of a wholesome person. He gives what is pure and excellent, allowable drinks and food at the proper time. He gives gifts often to fruitful fields of merit, to those who lead the spiritual life. He does not feel regret, having given away many material things. Those with deep wisdom praise the gifts given in this way. Having thus practiced charity with a mind freely generous, one intelligent and wise, rich in confidence, is reborn in a pleasant, untroubled world. A heavenly realm. All right, so here the Buddha is explaining kind of eight qualities of giving and practicing generosity and how this leads to improved benefits for you as an individual. And I explain these in detail here in the explanation, that an individual gives a gift that is pure or beneficial, that they Give what is excellent and useful, giving at a proper time. So if your teacher is actually teaching in a discourse and you interrupt them to give a gift, that would be the improper time. But if you showed up before class or after class, or you met with your teacher and invited them to come to your home, or you went to your teacher's home, these would be proper times to actually give a gift. An individual gives a gift that is allowable. These are items that are wholesome you know, not in conflict with the teaching. So if you gave, you know, beer or wine, or, you know, if you, you know, gave something that you know that a teacher is maybe vegan and they don't eat meat, for example, but you gave them meat, that would be unwholesome is what the Buddha is explaining. So if you understand the teachings really well, and you're able to make offerings, then you would make offerings based on the teachings, you know, not giving things like cigarettes or methamphetamine or something like this that an individual isn't going to actually benefit from and they're not going to use, they probably wouldn't even accept that type of gift. So the Buddha actually talks about different types of gifts that would be wise to give and things that are unwise to give. And this was covered in volume 12 of this book series, where he talks about how we don't accept Uh, land or we don't accept you know animals and you know slaves and you know human beings and things like this so all of those details are in volume 12. and then number five is giving a gift after investigation This is what we were talking about just in the previous chapter, where you investigate what is it that this person could actually use? What would be beneficial? What would be useful for them? Ensuring that you have put some thought into your particular offering. And then number six is the Buddha talks about giving regularly and consistently on an ongoing basis, whereas if you were to just give once a year or you know, once every two or three years, or once every six months, or once every uh, three months, or something like that. This is kind of infrequent and it's not producing the type of benefit. Whereas if you are giving regularly, you know, m- weekly or monthly or something like this, by frequent giving and consistent giving, this is a better training for the mind rather than just giving once a year this isn't having the same impact. So if you're giving one big, enormous gift once a year, it would be better to break that up into smaller offerings and do that regularly throughout the year, which is a better, more consistent training for the mind. So if you understand the goal of what you're doing when you're practicing generosity is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, then you understand why the Buddha talks about giving consistently. It's not just about him trying to make all kinds of money or wealth because he was rich as a prince of the royal family. He wasn't interested in money or wealth, and that's why he didn't even accept things like gold or silver or land or things of value like that. But instead, the reason why he's talking about giving regularly and consistently is because it's a consistent training for your mind. The giving, the generosity is for your benefit. But yes, it's there's this mutual support between the students and the teachers. So this is actually helpful for your mind to be able to practice generosity, to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And then those gifts are helping the teacher to be able to support the community, to support their own existence through the basic necessities that they need to survive, but also some of those offerings are being returned back to the community through different projects and different ways that a teacher should be using those resources to help and benefit the community. Number seven, the Buddha is talking about having a mind of confidence and knowing that the gift offered is wholesome. So, if you have deeply understood the teachings and you've learned those, then you can develop this confidence in knowing that the gift that you're offering is wholesome. And then, lastly, he talks about being joyful when you're giving and not having remorse or regret when you're giving. Because sometimes you might try to put together an offering and you might put together a whole lot, and then after you give the offering, you feel remorse that you've given too much. Or you might be kind of a little bit selfish with your offering and give that, and then afterwards feel remorse that you haven't given enough. But when the Buddha talks about giving, he talks about being joyful before and being joyful after giving. And while you're giving, be sure your mind is calm and confident. This ensures that there's no remorse and regret. So if you are practicing the middle way and you're practicing wise decision making or discernment, then you would ensure that whatever gift that you put together, whatever offering you put together on this regular, consistent basis, that it meets these criteria and that you don't feel any remorse after what it is that you've actually given. And that will help to ensure that your gift is fully purified through practicing these aspects of uh, generosity. So let me see what questions we might have related to these chapters or this chapter that I just taught. I don't see any questions in YouTube. I don't see any in Facebook, and I don't see any in Zoom. So it looks like that's all the questions you guys have for today's class. I will just in class by thanking all of you for for joining I appreciate that you guys are continuing to be dedicated and diligent to study. Apologize that I didn't have a moderator today. There was some impermanence, of course, that we're not always going to have a moderator. That would be permanence. So there's going to be some situations where there is no moderator. That's impermanence. So I appreciate your dedication and diligence to learning and practicing and allowing me the time that I needed to look through all the different places for questions In our next class on next Saturday, we're going to be in chapters 41 through chapters 50. So there, you're welcome to study those ahead of time if you like, and then actually come to class with questions. Or you can study them afterwards, but if you don't have time, you can always study them in class as well. On Sunday, which is tomorrow, we're going to be in our group learning program in studying that retreat series, Harmony and Relationships, in this particular class, we're going to go really in-depth with eliminating personal existence view and getting the self out of the way. So I'm going to spend the entire class just on personal existence view, what this is, what the problems you encounter, and then how to actually eradicate it from the mind. So if this is a topic that you're deeply interested in, it would be wise for you to attend that so that you can ask your questions and get a lot of insight because you would need to eliminate personal existence view just to get to the first stage of enlightenment. There's three fetters there, personal existence view, doubt, and wrong behavior and observances. So you would need to deeply understand this in order to even get to that first stage of enlightenment or anywhere beyond that. So we're gonna spend our entire class focusing on that tomorrow. And then next Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. and. This is a time where you can come together to support, encourage, and motivate each other in your meditation practice and get any questions asked that you like about meditation or any other topic that you like. So, we'll see you guys potentially in one of these future classes. Until then, have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadiha.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast.